Good morning to each of you. Good morning. Please turn in your New Testament to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, we'll be reading from verses 3 through 9 this morning. The Apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for each person who has been able to come here this morning. We ask that you would be our teacher, that you would minister to us through your word, that we'd be able to apply it to our lives and be changed in some way through our time here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a man who one day gave his testimony, telling about how God had sought him and found him, how God had loved him and called him and saved him and cleansed him and delivered him and healed him. And after the meeting, a man came up to him and took him aside and said, you know, I appreciate all that you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God, and you should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, the man said, I apologize. I'm sorry. I really should have mentioned that. My part was running away, and his part was running after me until he found me. God loves us so very much, and he seeks to draw all men, women, and children to himself. And the question I want us to ask this morning is, what has God done for us? We saw in that little story what God had done for that man in drawing him to himself. What has God done for us? And he's done so much. I mean, we could spend hours and hours, and we're not going to do that this morning. But we just want to look at our text this morning and draw out four things specifically that God has done for us. We know that he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, the Bible says. And just a little background before we look at those four things. Uh, this letter was being written by the Apostle Peter to believers in Christ who were called aliens and they were scattered throughout locations that were in modern-day Turkey, which were part of that time of the Roman Empire. And these individuals were experiencing various trials. If you turn over to chapter 4, verse 12, we read and it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, 
so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. These believers were going through very difficult times. There was suffering. It's called a fiery ordeal. There was probably slander that was going on for their good behavior, and yet they were not being recognized for it, but it was being twisted and turned the other way. So let's look first of all at what God has done for us. Number one, God has initiated rebirth. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. God has initiated a rebirth in individuals. And you might be here and say, well, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to be born again? Now, this particular verb is only found here and elsewhere in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, where it says you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. But the truth of regeneration is found in other passages of Scripture in the New Testament. For instance, in John chapter 3, you may recall the story of a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. And he said to Jesus, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth is a must. God initiates that through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When a person realizes that he or she has fallen short of God's glory, that they are sinners, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins, and they repent of their sins and they turn to Christ and place their faith in Him as their sin offering, they are reborn. They become new people. A new birth has occurred. They become a new creature, and new things have come. And so it has been rightly said there are only two types of people in all the world, those who have been born once and those who have been born twice. The point I want us to see this morning is God has initiated that new birth in us. He initiated it in the lives of the readers of Peter's epistle. I don't want to get fancy here, but the active voice in the Greek text of this passage indicates that this action was God's working in them. It wasn't something that they brought on themselves. God initiated the work. They humbled themselves and came to faith in Christ. And so God has not only provided the means by which we can be saved, but God has also initiated it in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, John talks about those who believe in the name of Christ. And he says, those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. We have been born of God if we have been born again. And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of what? The spirit is spirit. We are reborn through the Holy Spirit of God. And why does this happen? What, what is it in God that causes him to want to initiate this and cause this to happen in our lives? We sung about it this morning. Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Simply stated, we need God's mercy because we are a mess. The Bible is absolutely clear 
that there were none righteous, no, not even one. And if you look at Romans 5 sometime later today, you'll find that we are described as helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That's a pretty, that's pretty painful. (laughs) That God looks at us as ungodly, sinners, helpless, humbling, isn't it? Enemies. But God has provided a way to bring us to himself. God is not cold, nor is he cruel, nor is he callous. He is loving and merciful. And Peter describes his mercy here as great. His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And none of us deserves that mercy. None of us have earned that mercy. Many of us have heard of Napoleon, the emperor. One day a mother sought from Napoleon the pardon of her son. The emperor said it was the man's second offense and justice demanded his death. The mother said, I don't ask for justice, I plead for mercy. Napoleon says, but he does not deserve mercy. The mother said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask. Napoleon said, well then, I will have mercy. And the son was saved. God's mercy is what enables us to be reborn. God's mercy is what enables us to be saved. As we sung in the song a few moments ago at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Our sins there are many. His mercy is more. The second thing that God has done for us, if that's not enough, is that he has caused us to be born again, secondly, to a living hope. And his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This hope is not merely a wish. You know, like I, I don't wish this, but I wish I won the lottery, okay? Or I wish my car wouldn't break down when I drive to work tomorrow. Or I I hope I can get a new job. That's not the kind of hope that Peter is writing about here. It's not as writer H.L. Mencken wants to find it as a pathological belief in the occurrence of the impossible. That's not what Peter's writing about here. He's writing about a confident assurance in the present about the future. That's what hope is. A confident assurance in the present about the future. And this hope isn't seen. When I was putting this together, I was thinking, isn't there verses to something about hope isn't seen? And uh, Romans chapter 8, 24 and 25 says this. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And that really struck me, the end of that verse. For what we do not see, we hope for with perseverance. We eagerly wait for it. That's what our hope involves. Persevering and eagerly waiting for what we are assured is going to happen in the future. We all need this confident assurance in our daily lives, but we won't receive this hope through the world system. We can have hope for our country's future, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We hope for the best in our country, but our ultimate hope will not be found in the person who flies out of Washington, D.C. on Air Force One. We might seek our ultimate hope there, but we're not going to find it. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And and look at what the text says. 
We have been born again to a living hope. The living hope comes from being born again. The living hope comes from rebirth. So once that rebirth occurs, then we can have hope in our future. If we don't have Christ, we don't have that hope. But notice also that this living hope, and I take it that he's talking about a living hope because he then refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says that we've been born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without that resurrection, there is no hope. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Might as well close it up and go home, folks. It's over. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. The Bible says you are still in your sins. But since Christ has been raised and we believe in him, we are no longer in our sins. But if Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is worthless. So let's be clear. If there's no resurrection, there's no living hope. If there's no resurrection, there's no Son of God because the Bible tells us that God's Son was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1. And if there is no resurrection, there's no forgiveness. We're still in our sins. And if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Archibald Hunter was right when he said Christianity is an Easter religion. No resurrection, no hope. But the tomb was empty. We have the evidence of Jesus' resurrection by various appearances to various people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to who? He appeared to Cephas, to Peter. That was his, his name that Jesus gave him in John chapter 1. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now. So they could have been consulted about whether Jesus had really been raised. They were around. Some had died, it says, but there were many who were still alive. They could have said, this is a fraud. But they could testify to the fact that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. And he appeared to James and all the apostles, and he appeared to Paul also. Think about the amazement that Peter experienced when he was with Jesus after Jesus had died and the tomb was empty, and the women went to the tomb. And then what happened? Someone said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. They all went to tell the apostles. And Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrapping only. And he went on his way to his home, marveling at what had happened. And then later on the Sea of Galilee, he and his buddies are fishing. And Jesus appears on the beach he cooked them some breakfast and John said to Peter it is the Lord Peter jumps in the water swims to the shore Jesus provides them breakfast and then Jesus has a conversation with Peter and he says to him three times Peter do you love me do you love me do you love me feed my sheep tend my lambs he saw Jesus. He talked with Jesus. 
We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is alive just as much today as he was back then. Thirdly, he has provided inheritance, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is not a physical inheritance. It's a spiritual inheritance. Notice it's mentioned in heaven, verse 4. Will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I take this to be synonymous with our salvation. He talks about our salvation here in verse 5. Through faith for a salvation, may it be revealed. In verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What characterizes this inheritance, this salvation? Four things. Verse, verse 4. First, he says it is imperishable. In the original language, this means it's fully free of the forces of decay. It's not going to rot. Our inheritance is not going to perish. Secondly, it is undefiled. The adjective here carries with it a picture of something that's morally and spiritually free from stain. The word describes Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, 26, where it says it was fitting for him that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and undefiled. That's the word there, undefiled. There'll be no sin present in our future salvation. How great will that be? Thirdly, our inheritance will not fade away, which means it's permanent. My salvation and your salvation is permanent. When I was a kid, and this probably lets you know how old I was, um, there used to be a commercial that said something like this, chewy Tootsie Rolls last a long time. Is there anybody that remembers that? Maybe. Okay. I love Tootsie Rolls. But anyway, they lasted a long time, but they didn't last long enough because you always wanted another one. They weren't permanent. Okay. Our inheritance, our eternal life, our salvation is declared to be permanent. And men, I'm not going to get in trouble for this, but if you want to do something nice for your wife, I won't say this week, give you some time because I need some time as well. Buy some cut flowers for your wife. She will love them but they won't last a long time. She'll enjoy the time that she has with them. They'll fade away. Our inheritance is not that way. Peter describes it as permanent. And I love what William MacDonald has stated about our inheritance. He says it is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. Your salvation is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And lastly, I want you to notice in verse 4, the other characteristic, it is reserved, reserved in heaven for you. A reservation that cannot be canceled. A reservation that is a must, that is absolutely guaranteed. You call a restaurant for reservation, you might get bumped. Someone who has more clout than you have. You make a reservation um, for a motel, you might get lost in cyberspace. Somehow the confirmation gets lost. You make some kind of reservation on this earth. There's absolutely no total guarantee that it's going to happen. But this reservation will not be canceled. It is guaranteed and assured. 
So God has initiated rebirth, first thing he's done. Second thing he's done is he's given us a living hope. Thirdly, he has provided an inheritance. Fourthly, I want us to notice that he protects us, verse 5. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The verb protected here is in the present tense, which in the original language carries the idea of us being continually protected. Okay, it's not, I'm going to protect you here partially, but here you're on your own. God protects us fully. And notice how we are protected. We are protected by the power of God. Can you imagine anything more powerful than being protected by the power of God? Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my, fa- out of my hand. And then he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able. Let me repeat that. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. We are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is spoken of in the Bible in three ways. We were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Ultimately, when he's talking about salvation in our text, he's pretty much talking about the fact that we will be saved and our hope is there. But notice that he talks about here about the last time, the end of verse 5. Is salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? We need to recognize that there is a last time. Everything will not go on as it is right now. There will be a last time. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is amazing. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There is a last time. Our salvation will be revealed in the last time. What was Peter's response to all of this, to all these things that God had done for the readers and that God has done for us? Go back to the beginning of verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to enunciate all the different things that God has done for us. I believe when he, when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about all these things, God's mercy and his initiating rebirth and the living hope and our inheritance, our salvation, us being protected by the power of God. 
And Peter was not alone in this blessing of God. The same exact phrase is used in Ephesians chapter 1, which Pastor Chris has been talking about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says the same thing. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. The key thing here to me is the fact that Peter and Paul, they were all on the same page in the sense they recognized who God was and what he had done. And because of that, they had hearts of praise and worship to the God who made it all happen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One author has said that this beautiful passage is the outpouring of an adoring heart. Only one who has devoutly contemplated the greatness of our salvation could utter such a magnificent pan of praise. The Greek word is the word eulogetas. We can compare, for blessed be, we can compare our English words to eulogize and eulogy. And one author has said, whenever men bless God, they declare that he, in his infinite excellence, is infinitely praiseworthy and express their celebration of what he is and does. And may that be where this passage draws us today, back to the one who gave it all to us, to bless and to praise the God who is praiseworthy. There's a second question I want to ask this morning along with what God has done. And the second question is this. What characterized the readers of Peter's letter? Notice in verse 6 how they responded to this. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. But what strikes me here is that their great rejoicing was the result of in this, verse 6, in this, in what Peter has written, the readers were rejoicing about. In this, all that God had done, you greatly rejoice. And it reminds me that when we know what God has done for us, we have a motivation to praise God for who he is and for what he's done. I know the Bible says to rejoice always. And that is our responsibility. That's a command in Scripture. But I think it helps when we realize and meditate on what God has done for us. It gives us a heart, hopefully, that will bring great joy and rejoicing. Second, notice that they experienced various trials in verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The word distress there is translated in the King James Version, heaviness. It's the same word in, that is used by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew says, and, and he, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee in the Garden of Gethsemane and began to be grieved and distressed. That's the same Greek word that Peter uses here, that these believers were distressed. Isn't that wrong to be distressed? Jesus was distressed. What's interesting is that there was great joy, but there was also distress. 
at the same time. And I find it encouraging here that he says that these trials, he says, if necessary, you've been distressed by, if necessary. Some of our trials are self-inflicted <laughs> by the things that we say or don't say or the things that we do. Many of our trials we face because we are human beings and many of our trials we face because they are necessary because we are believers. They come because we are being faithful to what God has called us to do and to be. These trials come in the form of unprovoked persecution, criticism, unfair treatment, false accusations. The Apostle Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So these trials are part of our lives as Christians. It's part of being faithful to what he has called us to do and to be. But ultimately, our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This place is not our home. It hurts, but it's not our ultimate home. Someone has written the words, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And later, just over in glory land, we'll live eternally. The saints on every hand are shouting victory. So these believers rejoiced greatly, even though they were going through these necessary trials and they were distressed. But notice in verse 8 would also characterize them. They love Jesus. Peter writes and he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. They hadn't seen Jesus just like we haven't seen Jesus. But they loved him and we love him. As we realize what he has done for us, the excruciating penalty, death that he paid on the cross for us, both physically but also bearing the sin of the world on his body, on his perfect being, the God-man dying for us. We cannot comprehend the agony. But we love Jesus because he first loved us. And notice also in verse 8 that they believed in Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. There it is again, and full of glory. They were not like Thomas, and I'm sure it was difficult for Thomas. But Thomas didn't believe. He wasn't there when the other disciples were there and saw the risen Christ. And he said, unless I see him and touch and feel, I, I won't believe. But Jesus appeared to his disciples again, and Thomas was there. And Jesus told him to reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. We believe. We believe the scripture. 
We believe that Jesus died for our sins. We believe that he was raised from the dead and that he was dead and that he appeared and that he is our one and only Savior. And then notice the outcome of this belief in verse 9. He says, Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Their faith in Christ brought about their salvation. Nothing else. It's the same with us. For by grace, we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved in the future. For those of us who have been born again because of God's mercy, we have now a living hope in the present for the future. We have an inheritance of salvation which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. And we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. May you and I today rejoice in what God has done for us as these believers did. May we realize that indeed many of our trials are necessary and we might be distressed and that's okay. But we continue to love Jesus and place our faith in him. May we love Jesus and believe in Jesus in spite of the fact that we can't see him, in spite of the fact that there are trials that we must endure. And may we bless and praise God. for all that he has done for us. Let's pray together.